Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Curiouser and curiouser is one of my favorite phrases to describe the unthinkable. And 2020 has given me more reason to utter that phrase than any year I have been alive. The death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Friday at age 87 caps a year of pandemic, of massive social turmoil, and it precedes an election that features really garish questions about the future of our democracy. I find myself saying all the time, what possibly could happen next? But before we jump into the breach of despair and worry too much about where things are headed, let's take a deep breath and think through the mire just a little bit. Yeah, it is infuriating that Republicans who denied Barack Obama the chance to fill a Supreme Court seat, ostensibly because it opened up in an election year and, as they said, tradition would give that seat to the winner of the election, are now going to rush like Tasmanian devils to fill Ginsburg's seat with fewer than 60 days before the very next presidential election. It is duplicitous. It is unprincipled. And yes, it is a galling instance of institutional racism. Yes, racism. The raw exercise of power to maintain power is the primary force that sustains black oppression in this nation. It has since the very beginning. And that's what the Republican Party would be sinking to here doing what they can to cling to control without regard to the very rules they use to deny control to others. And in this case, it's really explicit, since they denied that court seat to the only black president in our history and will now propose to indulge a white chief executive. Even worse, the power that they're wielding in both the executive branch and in the Senate is derived from a minority of voters and Americans. Let me say that again. The power that they are wielding in both the executive branch and in the Senate is derived from a minority of voters and Americans. Most people did not vote for Donald Trump to be the president. And the Senate majority is composed of senators from states whose populations wouldn't come close to adding up to a majority of Americans. If this happens, it would be one of the darkest acts in the history of American democracy, and it will rightfully draw ire and anger in a lot of different quarters. But as frustrating as this situation is, we really do need to keep focus on what can change and when. The election itself, in just a few weeks, is the tool that can be used to start fixing this imbalance. I know that sounds Pollyannish, but it really is absolutely true. We have got to be sure that people vote. We have got to be sure that the votes cast get counted. And we've got to be sure 
that the arc of our democracy heads toward more equitable outcomes after that election. Many of the things that permit a GOP minority to wield such power, they can be changed. Think of the structure of the Senate, or think of the Electoral College. And there are already efforts underway to do those kind of things, even right here in the state of Michigan, where we have eliminated partisan gerrymandering in a move that will likely produce a more representative contingent for our state in Congress. No longer in Michigan will a minority party speak louder than the majority. I know it's hard, but it's critically important right now to continue to have faith in the mechanisms that make this fixable and to push even harder to perfect our union. Justice Ginsburg's death is sad, not just on a personal level, because she was a pioneer on the court and even before. But it's tragic because of the timing and the roiling reaction that we are going to have in our politics, in our culture. We've got to focus on the November elections. We've got to focus on getting people to cast their votes, on counting those votes that are cast, and then making the change that will matter. The work of correcting what's gone wrong in our democracy begins at the ballot box. Doesn't end there, but it starts there. And we've got to get that right for the sake of the republic we all need to work better. We want to spend the hour today talking about Justice Ginsburg, her death, her legacy, and all of the things that will happen in the wake of it. And we've got two really great guests to help us do that today. We want to talk with two really prominent Michigan women who've risen to very high levels in the legal field about Ginsburg and her legacy. A little later in the program, we're going to talk with Barbara McQuaid, who's a law professor at the University of Michigan and former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. But right now, I would like to welcome Dana Nessel, who is the attorney general of the state of Michigan to Detroit today. Dana, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. I got to tell you, I, I agree with everything that you said in your intro. Uh, and I, I truly believe that there is nothing broken in our system that we can't fix um, simply by the, the easy uh, act uh, of voting. And I, I have the, if you don't mind me uh, quoting Justice sure. Ginsburg yeah. in regard to that, you know, in her 2012 um, uh, biography, her autobiography, one of the quotes that stuck out to me most was um, when she said, the greatest menace to freedom is an inert people and that public discussion is a political duty and that this should be a fundamental principle of American government. And she said the same of voting, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and uh, and, and as we know about the 2016 election, um, Donald Trump did not win because uh, because the majority of Americans supported him. He won, at least in Michigan, I believe, because of the number of people, not who voted for him, but who didn't vote at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that can be changed very easily. That's and right. I will say that the difference between 2020... And 2016 is how much easier we've made it to vote in Michigan. And the people did that. 
We yeah. did that through Proposal 3 uh, in, uh, in 2018. And I hope that people will avail themselves of the many options they have and the many ways that they can vote in this election, uh, which I'd love to be able to discuss with you today because there's been so many changes just in the last few days in regard to that. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and we will absolutely get to that because I, I really want you to talk to our listeners about uh, those changes and, and how they will affect the way we cast ballots here uh, in just a few weeks. But but I want to start uh, with your reaction to the death of, uh, of Justice Ginsburg. Well, I mean, incredible sadness, um, but also gratefulness, you know, for her legacy. I mean, she was 87 years old, obviously. Um, I wish you could have hung out on even a little bit longer uh, to make it to January, but it was her time, obviously, and she fought vigorously. I think she had four bouts of cancer by the time she died, but she leaves with us a, a body of law uh, and a legacy that I think impacts each and every one of us in the United States, and, and none of us more so uh, than women in this country. And to me, I think the most obvious part of that is when you look at the fact that when Ruth Bader Ginsburg graduated first in her class from Columbia Law in 1959, she was completely unable to find work uh, because, Mm -hmm. very simply, she was a a woman lawyer and people were not hiring women lawyers at that time. And here we are, 60 years later in 2019, we had four women lawyers sworn into the highest levels of government in Michigan, uh, governor, attorney general, secretary of state, and the chief justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. And I, I, I truly believe, but not for the many cases that Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued as an attorney before the United States Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and in the many cases in which she presided as a justice on the United States Supreme Court, never would I be in this position with the other women that I mentioned uh, to have our opportunities to hold elected office. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that idea of the modeling that Justice Ginsburg was able to do for female lawyers and jurists, I mean, it, it almost can't be overstated. I mean, this is this is an icon in the in the literal sense of the word uh, for for women uh, in the legal profession. Yeah, I, I liken it uh, to, you know, Justice Thurgood Marshall and what he meant in terms of racial equality, mm-hmm. in terms of, of the impact that he made. And I would take Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, who, of course, was a pioneer on so many issues and cared so deeply about, I mean, whether it was due process or equal protection, uh, voting rights, I mean, the list goes on and on. But when you sort of um, quantify it in terms of gender equality, None of us would be in the places that we are today, but for her specifically and her body of work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk a little about the political fight that this sets up in in Washington. Um, uh, there, we're getting reports, of course, that Trump is already thinking of uh, people to nominate to replace Justice Ginsburg, and a lot of uh, attention is on U.S. Circuit Court Judge uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, Tell us a little about about who that is and what it would mean to replace a Justice Ginsburg uh, with somebody like that. Well, first of all, let's let's talk about the fact that they're talking about doing that in the first place. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, I think it really violates every tenet of fairness that we think about uh, in government in general, but specifically as to the courts. You know, we look to the courts to be uh, impartial, and our system of justice, you know, counts on that fact. But not for that, nobody trusts the decisions that are made by, by the courts. And we expect, of course, the other branches of government to be partisan, um, but not the courts. And so the fact that you would apply the two sets of standards, one to Barack Obama when he's president and the other to Donald Trump when he's president, uh, in terms of filling a seat so close to the election, and of course so much closer to a presidential election in this instance than when Antonin Scalia died uh, in 2016, it completely removed all sense of equity and integrity and fairness that our courts are supposed to encapsulate. Mm-hmm. And, and then what we'll end up with uh, is, you know, a majority of justices on the court that were appointed by presidents who did not win the popular vote, which right. is in a, a, just an insane set of circumstances. But when you take somebody as far right as all of the potential nominees and you replace a justice who was one of, a liberal icon on the court, it creates such a sense of disparity that I think it even, it adds to the feeling of injustice. Uh, and, you know, as much as I, of course, you know, I, I appreciate the Democrats who say that they will implore their colleagues in the Senate uh, not to do this. We, we both know what's going to happen, yeah. right? I mean, there, there might be a handful of Republicans, probably because they are facing election and know this will be used against them, that will not want to subscribe to that. But then during the lame duck period, I think anything could happen. So I think it's a reality that this will probably happen one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is the Attorney General of the state of Michigan, Dana Nessel. We're talking about the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the implications that uh, that has for the next few weeks here in our democracy in the run-up to the 2020 presidential election. Uh, What might happen, what might not. We're also talking about the legacy, the the stalwart legacy of uh, Justice Ginsburg, not just uh, as a Supreme Court justice, uh, but as a pioneer in the law uh, before she was uh, ever a judge. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what your reaction is to the passing of Justice Ginsburg. Tell us what her career maybe meant to you. Uh, what are your hopes or fears about the political battle that is about to unfold as President Trump ready his pick to succeed uh, Ginsburg. Uh, do you think the Senate should confirm a replacement before the November election? Or do you think that the Republicans who four years ago said that was an improper thing to do for Barack Obama ought to adhere to their word here and apply the same standard to President Trump? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation here. Uh, Dana, I also want to talk about uh, voting. Uh, As I said in the open, that is the thing I think we've got to keep our focus on, making sure people vote, making sure votes are counted. 
uh, that's going to look different here in Michigan, not just because of all of the things that are going on in 2020 and the disruptions, uh, but because of uh, because of the ways that we have changed voting here in the state of Michigan in 2018. Talk about the things that that you think are most important for us to be focused on as uh, as we get ready to vote. Well, firstly, you know, for the first time ever in a general election, we will have no reason absentee voting. Mm-hmm. And of course, even though the voters overwhelmingly approved of that in Proposal 3 in 2018, there was no way to know that there would be a global pandemic just a few years later. So it just happened to be very good timing for us that we passed that when we did. But, you know, what that means for everyone is this. Everyone can vote absentee who is eligible. And I encourage anybody, by the way, who's not registered to vote or who wants to vote absentee but has not applied to do so, to go to michigan.gov slash vote uh, and, and, you know, register if you're not. Apply for an absentee ballot if you'd like to vote that way. And uh, early voting starts on September 24th. So that is the date in which clerks have to send out absentee ballots to anybody who has applied. Or honestly, you can just walk into your local clerk's office uh, and you can register there. You can request a ballot and then actually vote right there. Um, but what it means is this. Anybody who, who wants to vote absentee and has applied to do so they can do one of several things. They can send their ballot in uh, through the mail. And we just had a very significant uh, ruling on a case that I brought, as well as many other attorneys general across the nation, against the United States Postal Service. Mm -hmm. And as we know, what the postmaster general was doing uh, was he was slowing down the mail, obviously in an effort to make it harder for people to vote absentee. And the court issued a, uh, a nationwide injunction on the moves that were made by the Postmaster General. He said that they were obviously politically motivated, were only done to disenfranchise voters, and that voters may had to be immediately retracted. And so what that means is that uh, as of now, I mean, whether it's making sure that all ballots are sent through the mail and treated as first-class mail, uh, whether it means that you can't change the operation hours or tell uh, postal service workers they can't vote overtime or leave mail left behind or even reinstalling the many sorting machines that they had actually removed from various different um, offices like in Pontiac and Grand Rapids. Uh, it, it means hopefully that the mail will not continue to be slowed down. But what I'm going to suggest to all your listeners is that if they want to send their ballot back through the mail, please send it no later than October 19th. That gives you a couple weeks, and it's more likely that we're not going to have an issue in terms of the timeliness that it arrives. But you can also take it to your local clerk's office and drop it off there directly. Uh, And you can take it to a drop box as long as that drop box is affiliated with your local clerk. It's not like the mail where you can just put your letter into any mailbox anywhere. Mm -hmm. If you want to drop it at the drop box, it's got to be the one affiliated with your local clerk, and you can look up your local clerk's office online to get that information. But the other big ruling that just came down uh, that people should know about is that the law, as it's stated, is that your absentee ballot has to be in the hands of your local clerk by 8 p.m. on the night of the election, November 3rd. But Judge uh, Cynthia Stevens with the Court of Claims ruled that because of the slowdowns with the Postal Service, 
Um, and because of many, the fact that so many thousands of people did not have their votes count in Michigan in the primary because their ballots were received just a day or two late, that as long as your uh, ballot is postmarked November 2nd, that it still has to be counted as long as it re- uh, is received by 14 days after the election when the election is certified. Right. But I, I think people shouldn't take any chances. Just either drop it off at the drop box, take it to your clerk, or put it in the mail by October 19th. So that way we can be sure there's not going to be any problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have confidence in, in this being able to work. I want, I want to make that point with our listeners. Uh, you're the, the chief law enforcement officer here in the state of Michigan. Um, you have confidence that this can work and and will work, uh, and and I I say that because I hear from a lot of people who are very worried about uh, about all of this. They're certain that there will be hijinks uh, or 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 missteps that mean that that votes don't get don't get counted. Well, I think that something like some of these rulings are going to go a long way towards ensuring that that does not occur. But I will tell you between myself. And Secretary of State Benson, the chief elections officer of the state, we are determined to ensure that every eligible voter has a full and fair opportunity to vote and that each and every vote count. And, of course, these rulings are very helpful for that. But we just have to make sure people go through the process. And, yes, we know that there will be efforts to misinform people, even by the president himself, who told people He actually told people to vote twice, Mm -hmm. which is a felony. And I have to let people know, and we're we're trying as best as we can to combat this misinformation and disinformation with accurate information. And I can tell you this, uh, the secretary has set up um, a a website just to report misinformation or to ask questions at misinformation at michigan.gov. But, yeah, we believe if everybody does this right, that absolutely everyone will be able to vote and every vote will count. And that is our primary goal for both Secretary Benson and myself. There is nothing more important that either of us are working on than making sure that we have election integrity for the November elections. Okay. Dana Nessel, Attorney General here in the state of Michigan. Always great to talk with you. Thank you very much for coming by today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Barbara McQuaid, who is a law professor at U of M, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, is going to join us to continue the conversation about Justice Ginsburg, her legacy, and what will happen now. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Michael in Detroit, Adam in Detroit, the others who uh, will be calling. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter. We've already got a bunch of comments there. I want to work into the conversation as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, 
I'm glad you've joined. We're going to continue to explore the life and legacy of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And now we bring a familiar voice into the conversation, Barb McQuaid, a law professor at the University of Michigan and former United States attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Barb, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Great to be here and very pleased to follow Dana Nessel, who I think is the RBG of uh, LGBT <laughs> rights. Yes, right. No, that's right. Uh, critical uh, case that she argued in front of the Supreme Court to make marriage equality a reality here uh, in Absolutely. the United States. Yeah. Uh, so you wrote a piece about Justice Ginsburg for USA Today, and you start with the following sentence. She was not the first woman justice, but she was the first voice for women's justice. Tell us what you mean by that. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg is sometimes referred to as the third good marshal of gender equality. Uh, she was an advocate for gender equality, not just for women, but also for men. One of the things she had done in the 1970s, she argued six cases before the Supreme Court when she was uh, leading uh, a women's law project for the ACLU. And one of the things she did strategically and very creatively was to, to pick cases that had male plaintiffs where the law discriminated based on gender in an effort to uh, protect women. You know, the view was that women um, were weak, were not sophisticated, and needed extra help. And so sometimes the laws were more stringent against men in things like um, survivor benefits and uh, child custody and, and those kinds of matters. And so by focusing on those cases, she got the law changed to promote gender equality. And that, of course, had benefits for women as well. Mm -hmm. She once famously said, some of these laws were designed to put women on a pedestal, but instead they keep us in a cage. And so by acknowledging that the Fourth Amendment, the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause applied to sex discrimination, she was able to change the law for all women yeah. forevermore. Yeah. I mean, and, and that that strategy, that, that way of interpreting um, uh, the law is is something that gets applied in in cases all the time uh, at the Supreme Court level and and other levels uh, in our in our judicial system. I mean, it is a it's a bedrock of a lot of uh, different ways of of reaching sort of more equal outcomes for people in the law. Yeah, and I think that uh, you know law students coming up today might tend to take some of those things for granted because. For them, it's the way it's always been. Many of these decisions occurred in the 70s through the 90s. Mm -hmm. She authored an opinion on the Supreme Court as well in the Virginia Military Institute case that had discriminated against women, didn't mm -hmm. admit them because they believed them to be weak and unable to fulfill the rigorous requirements. But she said famously in that case that, you know, we should celebrate inherent differences between the sexes, but we should not impose arbitrary ones based on assumptions and stereotypes. Um, and, and if individual women have the talent and abilities to do certain things, we should not stop them because of those preconceived notions. And so, um, and so, yes, you know, the things that we take for granted today, she herself faced in terms of discrimination. And she was, despite being a top graduate from her law school class at Columbia University, she was denied a law firm job in a New York law firm. Uh, Justice Felix Frankfurter of the Supreme Court rejected her for a clerkship specifically mm -hmm. because he didn't want to hire a woman. So she had seen that firsthand. And I think it's important to remember that uh, when we walk along those paved trails, you know, I've had lots of opportunities to do things as a woman, to be U.S. attorney and a law professor. Um, I only have those opportunities because of the work of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm. 
so let's talk about what happens now, uh, now that uh, her seat is open and we are just a handful of weeks away from a presidential election. Seems really different. Uh, what we're hearing from the GOP than what we heard in 2016 after Justice Antonin Scalia died in, in much earlier in the year. Uh, they held the seat uh, open. Um, talk about the institutional um, tensions, I guess, here uh, in, in terms of whether to fill this seat or whether to hold off and let the election decide who should who should get to do it. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. In 2016, when Justice Scalia died in February of, of election year of 2016, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, said, well, we're far too close to an election. We can't possibly fill this seat. The people should decide who makes that appointment. And since we have an election in November, we'll keep the seat open until then. And even though President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to fill that seat, Mitch McConnell refused to even give him a vote um, and to uh, explore it. So one would think that uh, with the death of a Supreme Court justice in September of an election year, mm-hmm. much closer to election date, he would follow the same protocol. But alas, um, he said, nope, we're ready to go. The president should pick the next justice and we're ready to vote. Um, we'll see how that goes. You know, we, they need to muster enough votes by Republican senators uh, to make that happen. But um, I worry that that sort of rank hypocrisy not only, you know, gives Republicans, their, their choice um, pre-election. But I, I worry about what it says to the, about the legitimacy of the court. Um, if the court is viewed as just one more uh, political uh, instrument in the machine of, of politics in this country, I worry that it loses its legitimacy. You know, the, the reason that we have a rule of law that people obey and adhere to is because we accept the decisions that they make. And um the, the, the Merrick Garland issue really uh, stuck in a lot of people's craw. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, if it's applied consistently, then I suppose uh, people live with that and that becomes the norm and we move on. But to see just the very next election, this complete 180 degree switch when the only thing that's different um, is the party in power of the presidency, uh, it really does tend to undermine the integrity of the system. Yeah. And I, I feel like there are a lot of points in our government and our democracy right now where these tensions are playing out between the idea of power and the wielding of power uh, and, and the sort of institutional stability and consistency that makes the republic work. Uh, Republicans increasingly seem willing to just resort to the raw exercise of power wherever they can find it, whether it's uh, whether it's backed by a majority or not, uh, as a way of keeping control. And I think that that um, that doesn't just threaten the legitimacy of the Supreme Court; it threatens the legitimacy of of the Senate and of Congress more generally, and certainly of of the executive branch. I mean, the the danger here, I think. Uh, it can't really be overstated in terms of what happens if you kind of go too far down this road. I agree with you, Stephen, and I think it's a great insight in the way the framers thought about the Constitution. They envisioned each branch of government kind of zealously uh, protecting its own mission and checking the power of the other branches. When you have a Senate that is instead more focused on advancing the power of the party uh, then it, it really causes that system to fall apart. You know, it's um, 
it, the, the analogy is always it's a three-legged stool. Each leg needs to be there for the stool to stand. If you remove one, it topples over. And when we have the Senate focusing instead on, on party politics and not on its duties, then the whole thing falls apart. Um, you know, I, I think my view is we saw this during the impeachment trial where Republican senators, uh, in the face of very strong evidence, uh, declined to convict the president mm-hmm. of uh, the charges with which he'd been impeached. Now, maybe reasonable minds can disagree with that, uh, but you know, it's their job uh, to to do their duty as senators and to put country over party. And I think when they fail to do that, then the whole the whole stool falls over. Um, and and I, I, this this hypocrisy between now and 2016, I don't know how anyone can um, say it with a straight face. There is a social media meme going around with Lindsey Graham, you may have seen it, mm-hmm. where um, he is speaking on uh, at a hearing in the Senate where he says, you can use my words against me if ever in a future uh, election year there is a vacancy on the Supreme Court. We should wait and let the people decide. I hope you will use my words against me. Well, um, that's <laughs> happening, and it doesn't seem to be making any difference. And so I worry that that sort of hypocrisy, as you said, um, does undermine the delicate framework that the framers of the Constitution created. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Michael in Detroit. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. And uh, I would like to, I'd like to start by saying that I have nothing but respect for Justice Ginsburg, and I hope she's in a better place. Uh, that being said, I think that uh, <clears throat> Democrats are not mad at Trump; they're mad at themselves, and they're mad because when they had control of the Senate. They changed the rules to make it easier for nominees to be confirmed, and now it's being used against them. Mm. They're also mad that they didn't complain when Obama nominated Garland in an election year. So why should Trump not be able to nominate someone? Mm. They're mad because the Republicans control the Senate. And Obama lost the Senate. And in the three elections since then, the Republicans have increased their hold on the Senate. And when people vote senators in, they know part of their job is to confirm justices. Sure. So the hypocrisy is not that Trump is nominating someone. It's just anger that politics have consequences and the Democrats have not been able to control the Senate. So, Michael, Michael, I... I can't argue structurally with a lot of what you're saying, but let me ask you this. Does it bother you that in the instances in which you're talking about Democrats having done things, so President Obama, for instance, nominating Merrick Garland in 2016, President Obama was elected twice by a majority of Americans, and he was stopped from appointing a Supreme Court justice, which is his job in the Constitution, by a Senate that was elected by a minority of Americans. And here in 2020, you've got that same Senate elected by a minority of Americans aiding a president who was elected by a minority of Americans to uh, apply a totally different standard. Does that not does that not offend your sense of fair play, Michael? No, 
No, it does. I have to correct. I have to correct you, Stephen. Uh, the president's job isn't to appoint a justice. His job is to nominate a justice. It's to nominate. And That's the, right. Right. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So the the Senate are elected by majority in each of their individual states. But they don't represent a majority of America. I mean, it's an institution. Well, then you have a problem with the Constitution. Uh, well, we do. Yeah, yeah, I think we yeah. do. Okay, well, that's a different thing. You could have dealt with that problem when Obama held the Senate and the House. Fair he enough. He held the Senate and the House. Yeah, fair and enough. That was a big issue. For two years, that we that. did have both. Yeah, uh, Michael, I, I, I absolutely appreciate the call and the thoughts. Barb McQuaid, I'll give you a chance to, to respond to him. Yeah, I heard Michael raise two issues. One was um, the elimination of the filibuster, and I agree with him. I think the Democrats were very short-sighted in eliminating that. Um, And I think that does not apply with regard to um, Supreme Court justices, but it does with regard to other judges. I think it was very short-sighted. You know, it's amazing how often um, politicians think only about the moment, and they don't think about the long term. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe that's the nature of politics. They're just worried about winning the next election. But um, you need to think about these institutions in the long term. So I agree with him uh, on that. On the other matter, though, about the they're just mad at themselves, I I don't think so. I think that they're very angry at Mitch McConnell um, for his hypocrisy. I think Barack Obama should have been permitted to nominate Merrick Garland. His presidency is for four years, and he nominated him with uh, more than six months to go in his term. I think he had 10 months to go in his term. Mm -hmm. Um, But once Mitch McConnell takes that stand and says, we think that in an election year, the people should decide to turn around in the very next election and say that's all off and it's really only about naked power, um, then I think that sort of hypocrisy really undermines public confidence in our institutions and I think is very harmful. Yeah. Uh, Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation uh, about Justice Ginsburg, her legacy, and the political storm that is probably about to unfold in Washington. Uh, We'll get to more of your calls as well. Steve in Detroit, Myrna in Ypsilanti, Adam in Detroit. We'll hear from you next. Uh, We also have Twitter and Facebook comments to try to get in here as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Barb McQuaid, law professor at the University of Michigan, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. We're talking about the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and what will happen uh, next. Uh, Barb, before we get back to the phones, there's there's an important uh, point I, I, I want to get to in this conversation. Um, in, in our republic, uh, the way it was framed, there are a number of provisions uh, that are meant to prevent uh, a tyrannical majority from uh, from running roughshod over minority uh, interests. Uh, th- this is the idea behind uh, the structure of the U.S. Senate, for instance. This is uh, part of the the thinking in the Electoral College. Um, but I, I feel like one of the things that we're seeing right now is that those provisions are being exploited by a political minority, which is the Republican Party to run roughshod over the majority. And and this 
fight over this court seat is maybe uh, the most glaring example of that. Uh, the, the answer for some people is, let's get rid of those provisions, right? Let's, let's change the system so that these things that are being exploited by the GOP can't be. But of course, there were good reasons to, to put those provisions in place. And if you do it, if you get rid of those things now, what you run the risk of is that you become the political minority at some point and you end up uh, without the ability to defend yourself. I, I, I wonder what you make of, of that dynamic. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I see it sometimes cynically, you know, in the way that we just talked about Mitch McConnell as uh, a, a minority that once enjoyed power, seeing their power uh, dissipate and using every tactic they can find to cling to that power. And so our system, I think, will not tolerate it. And in the long term, I think it won't. But in the short term, I think it does cause problems. You know, we see things like gerrymandering and voter suppression Mm -hmm. and an effort to uh, maintain power. None of those things are good or healthy for democracy. I think as the demographics of our country change, there, there needs to be a recognition that everybody gets the right to vote. So I think in the long term, um, we will see that the majority will be able to control those kinds of things. But um, as you've pointed out right now, we've got um, a president um, who is in power despite not winning the popular vote. He will have an opportunity perhaps to name um, three of the Supreme Court justices. Mm -hmm. Entirely one-third of the court will be appointed by someone who didn't win the popular vote. And so we are seeing a skewing and not the way um, the system was intended. I can't imagine that lasts long, but I think we do have to fight to um, uh, challenge things like gerrymandering and voter suppression um, because it is a way to cling to power, those last vestiges of power um, that uh, Republicans and whites enjoyed in the South. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's go back to the phones here. Adam in Detroit. Adam, what is on your mind? Hello, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? I'm okay. Well, I'll tell you what, as we say on the east side of Detroit, it's about to go down. <laughs> and if McConnell and if Mitch McConnell and Trump actually are actually able to pull this, this caper off, I think there'll be a lot of unrest in the streets and it'll probably be the last election I ever vote in. Well, well, Adam, I hope that last part is not true. You do need to vote in every election, and it's very frustrating when, when things don't go the way they should. But uh, but I hear what you're saying, and and I you know people are already in the streets right now. Twenty three million people are estimated to have taken part in the the Black Lives Matter protests, the largest social movement in history. Barb McQuaid, does this does this uh, agitate that in a way that that perhaps pushes us further to the brink of, of you know, kind of coming apart as, as a nation. Yes, I think so. And um, as Adam said, it's about to go down. I hope that um, one of the consequences of this action is that it inspires people to get out and vote. Mm-hmm. And so I would think that if there were someone who is perhaps a swing voter or someone who is um, not highly motivated to go to the polls, this might be the kind of thing that puts them over the edge. So it could be in some ways that when you see this kind of overreach by the Republican Party, it could be the kind of thing that motivates people to say, you know, enough's enough. Um, that is uh, that kind of hypocrisy is not something I'll tolerate. Mm-hmm. So I also think it puts into stark relief 
the consequences of this election. I, I'm sure most voters had already appreciated what an important election it is, but now with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think it reminds people of just how important the presidency is and what an impact it can have on our lives. You know, we talked about her legacy, and without her, where would we be? Um, there are many more battles yet to be fought. Justices often serve, and she served for 27 years. Justices often serve for 30 years. And so think about what we want our country to look like in the next 30 years, uh, we need to choose wisely who goes on that court. And there will be more opportunities to appoint additional justices in the coming four years. Mm-hmm. And so choosing wisely is important. So I think that it could have the effect of motivating more people to go to the polls and vote. Uh, again, uh, I really appreciate the call and the thoughts there. Let's go to Steve in Detroit. Steve, welcome to the show. Hi there. Hey. Um you know, the, the Republican Party has been playing a game of scorched earth politics for quite a long time. Um, Mitch McConnell's constant obstructionism in the Senate, uh, refusing to confirm so many of of, of uh, Obama's nominees, um, judicial nominees. Um, the entire Republican Party is complicit in the support of this very dangerous, demagogic, uh, dishonest president who's... Uh, who, who basically has no regard for for uh, democratic norms. Mm-hmm. Um, with that said, if they go ahead and nominate and and con- and Trump nominates and they confirm a a justice, Supreme Court justice, mm-hmm. before the election or before Biden is seated, should he win on January twentieth, we will have a six to three conservative majority. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what your guest thinks about the idea of a President Biden and should there be a Democratic Senate majority packing the court, as FDR tried to do. Mm. And in this case, we, it would require four additional justices to take away that, that uh, conservative majority because it will be a six to three mm. majority. Yeah. Uh, Steve. I've seen a lot of folks talking about that over the weekend. It's something that I've been thinking about for a couple of years. Why do we have just nine justices? And is adding to that number a way to counteract uh, the sort of anti-democratic way in which the Republicans have taken that kind of majority? Barb McQuaid, what do you what do you make of that possibility? Yeah, Steve, I can see why that's a very attractive scenario, but I, I think it would be a mistake. I, I think... You know, talking as we were earlier about um, the institutional credibility of uh, of the court, um, I worry that if every time we have a president and a majority of his own party in the Senate, mm-hmm. we see um, uh, these changes. You know, and then the next time there's Republicans in power, they do the same, and before you know it, we have a hundred member Supreme Court. I, I think the court loses its legitimacy when we do that, and so. Um, not only did we settle on nine a long time ago, that has been the tradition for a long time. Um, you know, there's nothing magical about that number, but I think if you pack the court with uh, favorable votes, their decisions lose legitimacy, and I think it causes us, it, it erodes respect for the rule of law. Mm-hmm. The court makes some really seismic decisions, and people get in line and follow them. I mean, there are people who are uh, deeply offended at the idea of marriage equality, and that is now the law of the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who oppose the Affordable Care Act, but the court supported it, and that is now the law of the land. And so um, if we want to continue to have respect for the rule of law, uh, I think we need to make sure that our court stays 
uh, credible. And I think we lose that when we start uh, tinkering around by by just adding seats to suit our political preferences. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the the the, the warning always is. Uh, you may be in power now and able to do that, but there will come a time when you are not. And are you okay with the other side uh, doing that? I mean, if you break through these these norms, you you can't always assume that they will, uh, or that the new paradigm will work in your in your favor. Uh, and and I think Democrats in particular have to have to really think about that because they are being. As taunted almost uh, by the Republican majority in the way that they are disregarding uh, all of these institutions. Uh, Steve, uh, appreciate the call and the thoughts. Let's go to Myrna in Ypsilanti. Myrna, welcome to the show. Oh, hello. Um, this is Stephen. This is another one of your brilliant uh, programs. Oh, I really you. like listening to your shows. Anyway, the first call you had, I, I, you know, first of all, I'm a lifelong Democrat. And I'm 79 years old. And I've been watching politics now for a little while. And um, for some reason, the Republican Party, the voters on the Republican side, they have been made to understand that who controls the Senate, the United States Senate, also controls who gets on the courts. But somehow the Democratic Party, the Democratic leadership, has not been able to make that case mm. to their voters. Mm. So, you know, my, I am a Democrat, but my beef with the Democratic Party is that they're naive. They think good will win out. They think truth will win out when it doesn't. <laughs> and then um, I also, you mentioned about uh, uh, not, uh, the president not being um, elected by a popular vote. Well, what about 2000? Yeah. Uh, when um, uh, Bush v. Gore case was uh, taken up by the Supreme Court, sure. and they put uh, Bush in the White House, uh, overriding the Florida Supreme Court's ruling to uh, have a recount, because right. there was a mandated recount if right. the difference of the votes was no, no. Um, less than 1%. Right. So, um, my, uh, you know, my Supreme Court is one of my um, pet peeves and yeah. the Democratic Myrna, Party's naivety. Myrna, I want to make sure I get a chance for Barb McQuaid to, to respond. We're going to run out of time, but I appreciate the call. Uh, Barb, should Democrats be f- more focused on the court in, in their political rhetoric and their campaigning than they are? Yes, and I appreciate Myrna's comments very much. You know, um, uh, the, the conservative uh, lawyers formed something known as the Federalist Society in the 1980s, mm-hmm. and they have been building a bench since that time of conservative uh, judges who are ready to take the bench in the Supreme Court. And so they've had a strategy for filling Supreme Court seats for a long time. I think Democrats are, are coming around to that view but it's taken a long time. There is something called the American Constitution Society that kind of forms the same purpose on the side. But as Myrna said, I, I feel like the ACS is much more concerned about you know, truth, justice, and the American way and not making <laughs> politics. And maybe we need to be a little more bare-knuckled uh, in thinking about these things on the Democratic Party side. Okay. Barb McQuaid, always great to have you here with us. Thank Thanks, you very Steve. much for joining. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Stay tuned to On Point. I will be on in the 11 o'clock hour to talk about Justice Ginsburg and her legacy. Also tomorrow, we're going to have a conversation about the contentious return of Big Ten football. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.